Welcome to episode two of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever competitive practice of law. Every episode is approved for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details are available at kylawshow.com. Today I'm interviewing Jay Prather, an attorney at Garmer and Prather in Lexington, Kentucky. Jay has a statewide plaintiff's practice focusing on medical malpractice, products liability, trucking accidents, and other plaintiff cases. He has nearly 15 years experience litigating and trying complex cases to juries. Jay also teaches a medical malpractice class at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Here's my interview with Jay. Okay, Jay, so tell us about your practice. How did you get started? So I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. Um, I, I represent plaintiffs in all kinds of complex litigation, sometimes simple litigation, although there's really no such thing as simple litigation. It's something that I've learned in my, in my practice. Um, but your question was, how did I get started? Uh, you know, some people always know that they're going to be a plaintiff's lawyer. Other people um, um, pick it up along the way. So I don't have any great, great Saul on the road to Damascus conversion story, um, but but I, I knew from the beginning of that what interested me about law was trying cases. You know, I, I, I liked you know, the, the Perry Mason, the John Grisham, you know, get in a courtroom, um, the kind of the flashy stuff that you see on TV, which of course is only, you know, 2% of a, of a, um, of a plaintiff's practice or any kind of law practice. Um, but that always, that always attracted me. I, I didn't really know um, that I wanted to be a plaintiff's lawyer you know, I grew up in a small town where, where the lawyers I was exposed to were generalists. Um, you know, people didn't necessarily identify themselves as I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, I'm a defense lawyer, I'm a corporate lawyer. People were lawyers for clients who needed them. So I, I really thought about that sort of thing, thought of lawyers in that way. Um, of course, I moved to the big city, Lexington, um, started looking at jobs in, in, in law school and, and people here and, and people in, in, 2003, when I was in law school in 2020, are a lot more specialized than they were in a small town in, in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. Um, so I kind of naturally gravitated towards the idea of, of plaintiff's law because I liked helping people. I liked having clients um, who I knew, um, and and I have a. Uh, soft spot, spot in my heart for the little guy, you know, someone who's had something bad happen to them who needs, who needs help, you know, that's why they go to a lawyer. So that was a uh, impetus for me or a draw for me to become a plaintiff's lawyer. And then I got lucky. Um, I started interviewing for, for uh, jobs in law school. I've um, had some interviews at some of the big firms that had splashy salaries for law students um, that uh, you know, sounded good. And, and if I had gotten uh, an offer of one of those, it would have paid my law school tuition for the next year. It would have been hard to turn down. Um, but I didn't. And I, and I kept looking and I landed with a great firm, which was the predecessor to what's my firm today. At the time, it was called Garmer and O'Brien, um, working for two trial lawyers who were, were well-respected as being at the top of their their game in the state uh, then and now, and um, they represented purely plaintiffs um, in complex litigation, the same practice that, I, that I've got now. So I jumped at that opportunity. They were also um, well-known for really utilizing law students as law clerks. They typically had um, 
um, more law clerks than they had attorneys in the firm, um, or at least as many. So the law clerks got a lot of substantive um, work. So I got to jump in to the practice of law, uh, you know, not practicing per se, but really acting like a lawyer after my first year of law school, you know, I wasn't handed research memos. I was handed um, um, motions that needed to be written and, and responses that needed to be um, um, written and, and preparation for depositions, the skills that, that lawyers really use um, directly. So I, I fell into that practice, got very lucky um, in doing so. And that only cemented for me the idea that I wanted to be a, a plaintiff's lawyer, um, that that was the, uh, the, the kind of the calling that I had um, because it was an opportunity to um, help people firsthand and to really know my clients. If I can back up a little bit sure. uh, to when I was in college, um, before I was even sure I was going to become a lawyer. I, I always, I grew up around lawyers, um, had lawyers in my family uh, and liked it and always thought that was something I would probably want to do or I might want to do, but I wasn't sure. And in college, I was exploring things and I worked for a political campaign. Um, it's, it's a volunteer intern for free for a presidential campaign um, back in 2000. And uh, I was working full time over the summer and I was working long hours and not making a penny, but I loved it. I loved the people I was working with and I really felt like I was doing something um, that was important and that was bigger than me. And um, that got me thinking a lot about my future and, and what I would do every day when I got up and went to work. Um, and I used to tell people, remember, this is in 2000. This is before that major financial crisis at the, when the uh, bubble burst and, and uh, some of the big um, energy companies went down. And I used to give the example. I don't know why I chose this company, but I used to say, you know, I don't see how I could get up and work this hard every day to just help a company like Enron make a few more dollars. Um, that just didn't seem like a calling to me. I, I wanted something that had purpose and that I felt like I was making a direct difference in, in people's lives. Well, of course, it wasn't six months later that Enron blew up and became the poster child for American corporate greed and everything that was bad in the, the economy and, you know, completely screwing its workforce. You know, it, its employees not only lost their, their company, they lost their retirements. It was just the perfect storm of everything that's bad with corporate America. And that's not to say corporate America is all bad. Um, there are a lot of people who do a lot of good, innovative things, but I realized even before that blow up that that wasn't for me, that I wanted to do something where I could, was more hands-on and, and could see a direct effect of my work in people's lives. And of course, you get to see that every day um, as a plaintiff's lawyer. It's a lot of responsibility um, because people are counting on you and, and you feel the good and the bad and you feel the, you, you feel the bad uh, um, even heavier than, than you appreciate the good. Um, but that was kind of the mindset that I had that I think led me into uh, the type of practice that I got, which was to be a plaintiff's lawyer. So fast forward back to where, back to law school. Um, I was working in a plaintiff's firm. I really liked it. I was incredibly fortunate that they offered me a job out of law school. Um, that firm had historically not hired young lawyers. Um, they would um, would utilize law clerks, uh, law students as clerks, help them find jobs. Um, but they, they hadn't, um, um, had intentionally avoided growing the firm and, and, and hiring young lawyers. And there've been some changes about the time, um, that I, that I started working, um, as a law student and they were ready to hire, um, 
um, a new associate about the time I graduated. There is an opening. They, they had had an associate uh, who left about that time and it all kind of fell into place. And I wasn't sure at the end of my 3L year what I was going to do as a lawyer. Um, and just before finals, um, they offered me a job and that was a no-brainer to to um, to take it, even though I was looking at some other options as well. Um, and that became, um, you know, has been my career. I've been with that firm ever since. Several years um, after that, um, Steve O'Brien um, left and started his own uh, his own firm, his own practice, which he had before he had joined um, that firm. Uh, it was kind of a time of transition, and and my now partner Bill offered me a partnership, and it became Garmer and Prather in two thousand nine, um, and uh, that just cemented my uh, um, my choice to to be a plaintiff's lawyer and to stay in this practice. So I, I some of it was serendipitous. But I certainly um, had a mindset, uh, even before I knew I was a lawyer, that that really translated well to becoming a plaintiff's lawyer. So that's how I got started in um, how I ended up as a, as a plaintiff's lawyer. And there's never really been any question in my mind um, that that's what I wanted to do. Okay. Um, that's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think what I'd like to hear about now, though, is pivoting a little bit is what is your practice like? When, on what percentage of what types of cases do you have? What, what's your day-to-day like? What, what kind of cases do you take to trial? That kind of thing. So, so of course, the, the cases you take to trial are the cases that you can't settle in a reasonable way for your clients. Um, you know, the, the cases, we don't pick a case and say, this is a case that's going to go to trial or not. We say, you know, this is a case we're going to do the best job we can for our client. And ultimately, um, we'll try it if we need to. And we prepare every one of our cases like we're going, going to trial. But the kinds of cases we do, uh, we call it um, um, complex or catastrophic personal injury in general. So we do cases that um, need to be litigated where most of the time where a client has been very, very badly hurt in some way. Um, that could be a physical injury to the client. That's most of our cases. Um, it could be um, some other type of wrong that's been done to them. For instance, we do a fair amount of um, veterinary malpractice, um, equine veterinary malpractice, or other equine cases. Um, and those cases may may not involve a, an injury to our client, but they've lost a horse, or they've had a horse, or a, a series of horses, um, you know, have been badly hurt. They may be race horses, they may be show horses, um, but a, but a serious injury to them. Um, so that's a kind of a non-personal injury type of case. But but those are the cases um, that we do. So we're very selective in the cases we take for a lot of reasons. Um, and the cases we take tend to take a long time. Um, and they virtually all um, at least begin litigation. Um, you know, and I, I define beginning litigation as filing a complaint um, in the courthouse. And I would say fewer than 5% of our cases um, are we able to resolve without filing, filing the lawsuit. The types of cases we do just don't lend them, um, lend themselves to that very well. So most of our cases are, are, are taken with the idea that they'll be prepared for trial and some of them will go to trial. Uh, many of those are medical negligence cases. That's about maybe 40% of our practice. Uh, those are people who've had uh, um, some sort of serious injury 
um, or even unfortunately sometimes death as a result of something that went wrong um, in their medical care and, and omission um, and oversight or, or a um, injury, physical injury, a mistake made by a physician, by a, another care provider, um, by a hospital service, some, something like that. Um, a lot of our cases, what we do are products liability. So a defective product of some sort that has injured a person, um, injured an animal, um, um, or done something to, to hurt someone. And that, some of those are medical device cases, so they overlap with medical negligence. Um, others are you know, airplanes, airplane crashes, um, a, def uh, a problem in a, an, with an aircraft engine, um, a lawnmower that's turned over and, and hurt a, a uh, client because it didn't have the proper safety equipment um, or the state-of-the-art safety equipment on it, um, farm machinery, um, those sorts of things are all common types of injuries that we see um, from products liability. Then we have other kind of negligence cases. We do a, a fair amount of um, big truck cases. Those are really interesting um, cases, and we see a lot of patterns um, in the cases that, that we get, which are, are truck crashes that result in very serious injuries. Um, we see patterns of, of safety violations or, or um, a lack of interest in, in, in safety on the part of the uh, trucking companies. That's not all trucking companies. There are very good, very safe companies and very safe drivers out there. Um, but um, there are patterns among those that aren't as safe. For instance, in I bet half of the cases, major cases we've had um, in the last five plus years, the driver um, did not speak English well enough to comply with the federal regulations and understanding uh, uh, traffic and informational signs and, and, and that sort of thing, which um, in some cases leads directly to the type of injury that our, that our clients have because it causes the driver to make a mistake because they don't recognize the signage or something like that. So, um, you know, those are a few types of cases, but really anything that, that, that's interesting that's resulted in a serious injury uh, where there's a significant case for liability on, on someone else, on a third person, is a case that we would look at um, and we would take. And that's the great thing about being a trial lawyer is, is you become a little bit of a jack of all trades. If you can litigate a case, if you can put a case together well, um, then you can learn about the subject matter, whether it's a type of farm equipment or um, how a, a, a piston aircraft engine works, reciprocating engine, or um, what the federal motor carrier safety uh, regulations are, the standards for commercial trucks, you know, or how a particular medical procedure is to be done. You know, you find the right people, the experts in the field to help you learn about that. But if you know how to try a case, um, you can take you can take those cases, and and that's something I really enjoy about being um, a, a trial lawyer and a plaintiff's lawyer is that I get to learn not just about the law in my area of the law, but about these various types of um, you know the various um, um, the subject matter of the cases that we, that we have, and that's very interesting. You know, I know far more about um, certain types of augers or hog farms or how um, um, how um, air traffic control works than I ever would if I weren't a lawyer, even though I'm not a farmer and I'm not a pilot and I'm not a truck driver. And I wouldn't necessarily have a reason to learn about those things if I weren't a lawyer. You know, I'm, I, I like learning about the world around me and I get to do that in, in depth in a lot of interesting areas uh, as a trial lawyer. So how do you learn about those different areas? I mean, is it mainly working with experts or do you read books or a mixture of both or how does that come about? 
all of the above. You know, I really don't know how people practice law without Wikipedia. Um, of course they did for, for hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years. Um, and of course we never, uh, you know, I say that kind of in jest, we never, uh, build a case based on Wikipedia, but there are great online resources, um, that are your starting places. I, I teach, uh, medical liability at the, uh, University of Kentucky Law School. And I, one thing I tell my students that we do in our practice is if you have a, a, a case in a new area of medicine that you don't know about, the first thing you do is you go to the medical literature and you you find um, find the articles that have been written recently on your particular subject, the procedure or the pharmaceutical or whatever it is that's the the subject of your case, and you find out how who is on the cutting edge of that, who is writing about that and studying that, and then you contact those people, and and sometimes they'll be your experts, um, or they'll help you find someone else uh, who is. So I, you know, I've um, read enough. Uh, medical journals, and I know enough statistics from um, what I what I you know took in college um, to be just a little bit dangerous, and to be able to pick up an article and get an idea of what it's about. But I certainly don't claim to be a physician, for instance, sure. um, and I don't claim to interpret those. Um, but I can hopefully pick out what's relevant, learn a little bit about. Um, learn a little bit about the subject matter and then figure out who to call who can teach me more. Um, and, and so you reach out to the, to the experts in the field who really know the subject matter and then you rely on them to, to, to teach you what you know, to, to do the analysis, to figure out what the salient points are. You know, if it's um, a medical negligence case to teach you about whatever the procedure or the diagnosis um, or, the, or the test or whatever it is that's in question, you know, to learn about that and how that works and how it fits into the case. Or if it's uh, an auto accident and there's a question about whether the, the, um, the at-fault driver was speeding in, in his truck, well, you learn how you know, how to rely on data that comes from black boxes, it comes from skid marks on the road, you know, that may come from a surveillance video of a nearby store that got the crash to, to put that data together and figure out speed or trajectory or whatever might be um, salient to your, to your particular case or to how to interpret a, a cell phone record and a 911 call to pin down the timing of when something happens. So you can figure out if the driver were on the phone at the time that the crash happened or if he had hung up to, you know, before coming around the curve like he claims. Um, so there are lots of sub-issues in every case. And you know, nobody, no lawyer certainly is going to be able to be a master of all of those, but you can learn a lot about them um, through experts, through the literature, through what's been published. Um, and even through Wikipedia sometimes. But Wikipedia is a starting place, not the ending place. Wow, that, that is really interesting. Um, can you think of any examples or maybe one specific example of something that you found really fascinating about whether it be augers or safety regulations or air traffic control, something that you've learned researching a case that our audience might think is interesting too? Oh, well, um, you know, what I, what I find interesting and what our audience finds interesting might be totally different. Uh, sure. might, be, might be totally different. It's my wife likes to remind me um, all of the time when I get excited and start uh, thinking about a case. Um, you, know, you put me on the spot a little bit here. What would be an, an, an interesting um, um, element of something that something that I've learned? Um, we were very involved, and, and this is a big part of the beginning of my practice. We were very involved in the um, 
um, Comair litigation, the Comair crash litigation in Lexington. And some of your listeners might remember the real tragedy that this community had in 2006 when the Comair Flight 5191 mm -hmm. crashed on takeoff uh, about 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning in Bluegrass Field and killed everybody on board other than the co-pilot um, who was um, at the controls as the flight was taking off. Um, and, and, and that case um, is something that really shaped the early part of my, my law practice. Um, but something that, that was um, shocking to me um, that I learned um, was about the lack of a, of a procedure. Um, and we'll back up a little bit um, again. When I was in high school, um, I loved my Microsoft Flight Simulator, middle school, high school, uh, probably I got that in about seventh grade and loved playing with that. And of course, it's rudimentary then, but I learned a lot about uh, about flying. I've never been a pilot, probably never will be a pilot, but I've always been interested in planes and I love playing flight simulator. One thing I learned early on in flight simulator was what those numbers on the end of the runways mean. And those numbers, those big numbers, if you look at an aerial view of a runway, there's a big number between um, one and 36 on that runway. And that's the first two digits of a compass heading. So if the number is um, nine, um, that stands for a 90 degrees compass heading or due east. So if you see a runway and the, has a number nine on it, that means that runway in the direction that you're looking at the number nine is, is uh, facing 90 degrees due east. Um, and it's there to help uh, pilots know the, know the trajectory that they're um, supposed to land on, the, the compass heading. Um, so that was something that I knew and, and thought was fairly obvious because I'd learned it in, in you know, just picked it up my, myself as a, as a teenager, you know, playing flight simulator. Well, the problem with the 5191 crash, the way that crash happened is that Bluegrass Airport had two intersecting runways. The runways kind of made an X um, and there's some construction going on and there's uh, some confusion on the ground. Um, most of much of it self-induced by the pilots, um, but the runway land, the, excuse me, the pilots, um, landed, lined the airplane up the wrong way on the wrong runway for takeoff. Um, so they were uh, supposed to be, I, I sometimes get this backwards. I, they were supposed to line up on runway um, 27 and they lined up on runway 22 instead. Well, the problem was runway 22 was a short runway. It was um, you know, just designed for little general aviation Cessnas and things like that that don't weigh much and don't uh, need much runway to take off or, or, or land. And they lined up on the wrong runway and they and they um, tried to take off from that runway and they didn't realize their mistake until they got to the end of the runway. Um, by then it was too late. The plane was at nearly takeoff uh, velocity, and, and but not quite. Um, and it bumped a little bit and it went airborne, but didn't have um, the the speed that it needed to to get proper lift and stay airborne, and, and it tragically crashed. Um, and when I heard about all all of this happening before I even knew we would be involved in the case, um, my first thought was, well, why didn't the why didn't the pilots look at the compass? Because if they're supposed to be on a certain runway, I know from a teenager playing flight simulator that. Um, that um, that runway lines up with the compass heading. And if they looked at their compass, they would know that they weren't on the runway that they were, were cleared for. So what I learned in that, in that case is that even something so obvious, um, uh, you know, to a teenager who played flight simulator on, on making sure you're on the right runway was not a standard part of 
um, takeoff mm. procedures in the airline industry. Um, there is no, there were some pilots and some airlines that required it, but there is no FAA requirement that um, checking the compass heading uh, um, be on the pre-departure checklist. And the particular airline, uh, you know, Comair, um, which is now defunct, and did not require, did not put it on their own checklist and did not require it. So, you know, that was something really interesting to me that I learned um, that there is an omission of something that seemed obvious and was a very simple and, and basically cost-free thing. I mean, what's the cost of mm -hmm. checking your um, double checking, cross-checking your runway heading with your compass? I mean, the cost of that is, you know, a second and a half that it takes to glance and process uh, your your compass heading. Um, and it's very, very minimal in the in the case of aircraft operation, uh, operations. It doesn't require any more equipment, uh, requires barely any time, um, but it would be, um, you know, critically important from safety-wise to prevent something uh, from happening like what happened in Lexington in, 2000, in August of 2006. Um, and I would have thought that that was based on my, you know, my flight simulator experience. I would have thought that that was just a no-brainer thing for pilots to do, and they weren't doing it routinely, at least, you know, on that day and in that airline, because it wasn't required by either the airline or the or the FAA. That's something that became part of the recommendations to change the NTSB uh, made um, after the crash, and and and, um, you know, I don't. Um, have the inside airline information, but hopefully that's something that's now a standard practice in the airline industry as a result of, of this crash. Um, and, and which is also an example of how safety can be improved by what plaintiff's lawyers do by calling, uh, calling out mistakes um, and weaknesses in our system and obvious solutions. Um, we obviously can't change, you know, the one thing we can't do as plaintiff's lawyers is go back and change the outcome of, of um, a case for our client. We can't undo an injury. Um, we can't bring back to life somebody who's gone, unfortunately. Um, you know, what we, what we have is monetary compensation uh, and accountability. But one of the benefits, of course, many of our uh, cases directly, you know, you know, make a difference in um, by recovering money, make a difference in our clients' lives and and or the survivors' lives. Um, but also, um, the the whole civil justice system brings attention to. Um, safety problems that um, in many different areas, including the airline industry, that may not be uh, covered by government regulation or effectively regulated or anything else. And it creates an incentive for, um, um, for industry, uh, for drivers, for anyone out there to do the right thing because they know that there could be personal liability for them um, if they don't, and that improves safety. And, and hopefully as a result of 5191 and the study afterwards and also the litigation around it, hopefully air travel is a little bit safer than it was before that case. Yeah, no, I, I think that is really interesting. Thank you. Um, what's one thing you wish you'd known when you began your career that you, that you didn't know that you've learned since? Um, Something that that I that I didn't know that uh, how important persistence is, um, and how long it takes to do a case well. 
um, you know, we watch TV and we see a whole case tried in 30 minutes or an, or, or, or an hour, you know, they build it up, they pick up a file, they go to the courtroom and they try a case. And it doesn't happen like that in real life. Uh, patience and persistence are incredibly important uh, qualities in, in any successful trial lawyer, plaintiff's lawyer, uh, defense lawyer. And I'm sure it's the same on the, on the criminal justice side. Of course, there's no right to a speedy trial. Um, in the on, the on the plaintiff side. Everybody wants to move their cases forward and our clients always will move their cases forward, but there are all kinds of roadblocks and stumbling blocks to, to doing that. Of course, an, a defendant has an incentive uh, and an insurance company has an incentive to slow play cases um, because um, if they can if they can delay a settlement or delay a judgment um, and they've got money set aside for that, they can they can earn better returns on that money than what they're giving up because there's no pre-judgment interest um, in civil cases most of the time, certainly not in injury cases. Um, so there's a financial incentive to slow things down, but there's also just logistical problems. Complex cases uh, um, are, are called that for a reason. They often have a lot of lawyers involved, a lot of parties, uh, witnesses can be spread out. Um, you know, if there's a, a an important witness, and before the days that we were doing everything on Zoom, if there's an important witness across the country in Washington State or in Arizona or someplace, and you have to have five different lawyers from five different law firms there for that witness's deposition, just scheduling that, um, you know, maybe a three-day trip to the West Coast, a day out, a day to take the uh, deposition, a day to come back, and to find a day that, you know, lawyers from three, four or five firms are all available and the witnesses available and everyone can has three days in a row, the same three days they can block out of their calendar to do that. You know, that can push it out a long time to um, um, be able to to move a case along. You know, it's also very important to find the right witnesses to, to you know, be diligent and to, um, um, you know, talk to the people who who know about a case, whether it's an investigating police officer, whether it's a physician who um, is on the cutting edge, edge of a procedure, who teaches a procedure and knows um, how it should be done. You know, it, it takes a lot of persistence to find the willing people uh, and, and, and who have the time and are willing to give you the time and then to find that time uh, to put together your case. And, and the best cases are the ones that are built like building blocks from the ground up um, with a good solid foundation and, and are built all the way up to the, to the uh, pinnacle, which is trial, um, piece by piece. And that's not something that just comes, uh, comes together overnight. It's not something that comes in a nice, neat little handy packet like they hand you in your law school class to, to write your brief about or to conduct a mock trial about. Um, there's a lot of, lot of legwork and a lot of work on the ground to do that and do that well. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, having to travel and get a lot of people together for depositions has, you know, this pandemic era, this zoom culture, these zoom video depositions, has that made that any easier or, or harder? Well, it's absolutely made it easier to coordinate and to schedule. And I think the legal profession had been years behind the times on um, on using technology that was that was available um, to do things like depositions, mediations, and other things remotely. Of course, we've been forced to, and and and, and we're doing virtually. Um, um, all depositions that way, which is a big part of putting cases together. I, I, I've not taken a deposition in person since the pandemic began, and a lot of lawyers, other lawyers have not either. Um, and, and even the ones who've taken some in person, I think that generally has been the exception, not the, not the rule. 
And there was a lot of resistance even at the beginning of the pandemic to doing that. And then very quickly, lawyers realized that they're going to have to, you know, this wasn't just going to be a two, two week or a four week lag. And that if on both sides, if we're going to keep our cases moving um, uh, towards resolution and keep ourselves busy, we would have to adopt the technology. And I think that's been good that uh, it's forced lawyers into that. And I think that will continue um, after the pandemic, maybe not 100% like it is now, um, but it's a lot more economical to get on Zoom Zoom um, and spend a few hours at my desk taking a deposition rather than uh, the cost and the time, especially of going, um, you know, across the state or across the country. And whether I'm driving to Paducah for a deposition or flying to Los Angeles, that's a big investment um, of time that, that's not particularly productive getting there and, and, and getting home, especially for plaintiff's lawyer. Um, we generally work on contingency fee. We rarely are paid by the hour. So, you know, that's not productive time in the sense that it's not, if, if we're not furthering our cases with the time we're spending on it, uh, on an airplane, we're not, um, you know, we're not getting any compensation for that. Um, you know, uh, lawyers who, who work by the hour, at least at their bottom line, uh, you know, it, it helps if they're spending time travel, they're paid for that time. We are not. Um, but even if you're paid for that time, um, you often have better ways you could be using it um, in, in being more productive and efficient than getting home and spending more time with your family. Uh, so I think the vast majority of, of um, the depositions we're taking and the cases we're, um, we're working on can be done very effectively over Zoom. There, there are some things that can be, you know, I don't think trials, jury trials could be done effectively over Zoom. There are some times that you need to be in the room with your client or in the room with the with the witness. Um, but with a little bit of planning, uh, Zoom works very well for that and um, um, is, is much more efficient, uh, you know, and it's almost costless um, to, to do it. Five years ago, even less than that, I would occasionally take a remote deposition um, if we had no other choice. So we usually went to a court reporter's office um, who had some sort of ISDN line hook up to a video conference center, wherever the witness was. And that was very, very expensive. You know, I, I, I did a couple of those uh, witnesses on the other side of the country. And I figured out that, that my only savings was time because it cost me just as much to rent the time on video conferencing systems um, on, on both ends, having to pay for, you know, my end and the witnesses end. Um, that that would cost just as much as an, an airplane ticket in a hotel room for a couple of nights. Um, you still save the time, which which was nice. But now that we can all do it with Zoom um, or Skype or similar software on our desktop computers without leaving our office and, and, and basically costless, it's really a no-brainer um, to take many depositions this way, this way. And of course, it's, it's much safer as long as this public health crisis is going on. Okay. What's one common myth about plaintiff's work that you'd like to debunk? I, I think there's an idea um, among a lot of people out there that, that the money is better on, on the plaintiff's side um, than it is on the, on the other side. Uh, you know, it's a grass is always greener sort of thing. Um, the economics of a plaintiff's practice are very different. The cash flow is very different. Um, you know, people hear contingency fees and, and that, you know, there may be a 25% or a third or even a 40% fee um, on a recovery. And that sounds like a lot of money, especially if you see a big settlement or a big uh, um, uh, 
you know, result in the millions of dollars that makes the headlines. But there's a couple of things to remember there. Those million dollar results are few and far between, even in very serious and legitimate cases. They make the headlines for a reason. They're unusual. And there are, I don't know how many civil cases are filed um, in Kentucky each year, but, but tens of thousands, uh, certainly, thou certainly thousands of injury cases, you know, very, very, very few of those um, um, ever result in a seven figure recovery. Um, uh, you know, so the, 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 uh, you know, sheer dollar amounts of the cases, the, the, the run of the mill cases are not what you see in the headlines. Um, but also, you know, there may be a big one-time fee and a contingency fee, but that, that fee may result, you know, years of work by multiple lawyers, multiple support staff, all of the overhead that goes into it, um, the, the experts, the costs that come into putting it, putting a case together. Um, um, so while the, while the individual fees that come in, um, can sound large when they come in, um, you know, they're, they, they come in sporadically um, and um, unpredictably and, and rarely. Um, I saw a study several years ago, and I've looked for it again. I wish I could cite it exactly, but it was an insurance association study that looked at all of the costs of insurance payouts um, that were made. For, for injury cases among a lot of insurance companies and broke down where that, where that money ultimately went. And I, I don't remember the exact percentages, um, but it broke it down money that went ultimately to the claimants, the people making claims, whether in a lawsuit or, or pre-litigation, how much of it went to defending the cases and how much of it went to the lawyers prosecuting the cases. And the, and the, the total cost of the of the tort system that went to uh, defense costs, defense lawyers, fees and costs, and and ultimately the plaintiffs' lawyers was very close. I think it was about seventeen percent to plaintiffs' lawyers and fifteen percent um, to defense lawyers, uh, with uh, other money going to claimants and 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 other costs. And you know that was from the whole system. So on a whole. Plaintiffs lawyers aren't earning very much more money than defense lawyers, and I was an economics major in college. I don't, I don't claim to be an economist, but I do have a, a general understanding of it. And I, I look at it that that two percentage differential in the amount of money that that is going towards plaintiffs lawyers' costs versus defense costs is really accounted for by the time value of money. Defense lawyers get paid monthly or quarterly. I think quarterly is more common now, you know, as they go. A plaintiff lawyer gets paid, if at all, at the end of a case, and they have to carry not only wait for their fee at the very end, but they also you have to carry costs. And, and you know we run a line of credit. I think most plaintiff lawyers do, and pay interest on that money that you know pays overhead, and that also pays for case expenses, hiring experts, and and, and that sort of thing. Um, so the the differential in the cost really really is I, I think subsumed or accounted for by that time value of uh, of money that you know we are taking on both more risk. So we may spend years and, and a lot of money working on a case, and we may not get any fee if the case doesn't resolve successfully. And, and there can be a lot of reasons for that. You can win a case. I've won a case at trial, but not been able to collect a penny um, from the defendant. Well. 
you know, that judgment looks really good in a file or you know, I can hang it on my wall if I wanted to, but it doesn't, but it doesn't help make payroll if you can't ultimately, uh, if you can't ultimately collect it. Um, so, so I think there's, there, there's a perception that there's more money on the plaintiff side and in the big picture overall, no, there's really not. I mean, there's a, a handful of lawyers out there who are very, very successful um, and do make a lot of money as plaintiff's lawyers. Um, but, um, you know, in, in, the, in the big picture, um, the legal fees in the tort system going to the defense lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers are, are roughly equal. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, what are some of the things that are really like hot button kind of topics right now that you're researching, researching or litigating? What are the hot topics in, in your practice? Well, in the, in the, in the medical negligence area and the nursing home negligence, a, a recurring issue, and, and this has been an issue for a long time and will continue to be, is the confidentiality of peer review. Um, so most uh, nursing homes, most hospitals, most doctor's practices have some formal procedure in place um, to review bad outcomes in cases. Um, it works a little bit differently, has different names depending on where you are. Hospitals often call it peer review um, or they call it something called a, a, a root cause analysis, which is something that is required in certain situations by their um, one of the major accrediting agencies for hospitals, which is called the Joint Commission. In nursing homes, they call it, uh, they usually call it QA, which stands for quality assurance. Um, and there are some QA requirements under the uh, federal Medi Medicare or Medicaid regulations um, that if, if nursing homes want to be eligible to participate in those federal programs, they have to follow quality assurance programs. So there's various different um, ways that it come about, but, but it all comes down to one thing, and that is if there is an adverse outcome that the, um, the body, whether it's a hospital or nursing home or something else, will will convene some sort of internal review of that outcome. And there are um, confidentiality laws there that in certain situations um, um, uh, privilege those conversations. And the idea behind the privilege is that they want the participants um, to be candid in the review um, in order to, in order to um, help prevent the same thing from happening again, improving a system or fixing a, a mistake. And the rationale, the, the, the rationale behind the privilege laws is that um, providers will be more likely to be candid and forthright and willing to participate um, if in fact they, they know that um, what they say may, won't be used against them or a colleague later on in a litigation. The counter argument is uh, just like many of our open records and public meeting laws and other things that sunlight is the, is the best disinfectant and that um, you know, some people may be more likely to be candid um, if they know rather than protective of their, of, you know, someone who's potentially a friend or, or a colleague, they're more likely to be candid if they know that um, uh, the proceedings of their group might someday be exposed to external uh, scrutiny and they would look silly if they were um, baselessly defending someone. But there's a lot of reasons that those reviews become important in litigation. Um, you know, obviously they're done by people who are close to a situation. Oftentimes, you know, if it's a surgery that went wrong or resuscitation that went wrong, you know, during a surgery or something, it, it, at least some of the participants in that review are people who are in the um, operating room when it happened. Um, 
uh, you know, in a nursing home, you know, if it's a patient that fell, if someone in or was dropped, someone involved in the review may be the person who, um, you know, was in the room when the patient was dropped or, or who showed up immediately afterwards before anything had been picked up and, and, and cleaned up. Those reviews are also usually done very close in time, within days or, or within a month of the of the event when memories are fresher. By the time you get into litigation and a deposition is scheduled, a year, year and a half more may have gone by for for various reasons. Um, so there's a lot of reasons that there can be very good information um, that that um, would be useful to one side or the other or both sides. Um, um, come out of those reviews uh, that would be useful for litigation. And um, obviously, uh, plaintiff's lawyers want to have access to that information. Um, but like I said, there are laws that, that privilege that, especially federal laws and in, in some state laws and state statutes. Um, and it's a moving target. They're, how those laws are interpreted, how they apply to, to various situations changes, the laws change, the federal regulations change, uh, there was just a statute change about a year ago. Uh, I guess it's been two years ago now because we didn't do much in the legislature last year because of COVID. Uh, but it's just now beginning to be um, um, to be applied. So one of the constant issues we have both in the trial courts and in the appellate courts is to what extent are are internal reviews, quality reviews, peer reviews that are conducted of bad medical outcomes discoverable in civil litigation? And, and the answer to that is, is it's still very much a case-by-case -case basis and very specific to the type of review and the factors involved and the availability of the information um, from, from other sources. Um, and there's no, there's no single answer to whether that's discoverable or not, but it is constantly litigated, uh, both in the trial courts and the appellate courts. And, and that landscape has been shifting in recent years and will, and will continue to shift. Um, there are better arguments or there's a better chance of getting um, records of factual statements that are made than there are of conclusions. Um, there are better chances of getting it if there is an external um, requirement um, that's separate from uh, the, some of the um, uh, privileged systems that, that are in place. Um, but, the, but the type of information uh, that you can get is, is a uh, very contentious and very heavily litigated um, issue. And, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, I, I can think of a case we had several years ago where we had interviewed a participant um, in a, a resuscitation that had gone bad. And, and in the, I think I said we interviewed, we deposed him. Um, I think my partner deposed him. And in his deposition, he said, uh, he was asked how the resuscitation went after they realized the patient wasn't breathing. And he said, everything went like clockwork. Um, and, and everybody was there and, and, and did their jobs. And it was unfortunate that the patient could not be saved. And in that case, we later got the, the minutes of the peer review that had been done internally at the hospital just afterwards. And um, it was painted a very different picture. And even I think interviewed uh, uh, the same uh, physician who we had deposed and it was written down by, by another employee of the hospital, but they used some very colorful language um, 
I can say on the podcast that he called it a, fi- a Chinese fire drill at one point, um, as well as some with some more colorful things. But painted a very different picture of what happened during the resuscitation um, and mistakes that were made, and that was done when memories were fresher and when um, the, that particular witness was being more candid. We got to take that witness's deposition again, you know, show him the statements he'd made, and he, he said, "Well, I remember it a little bit differently now," and that made a big difference in the income, outcome of the case because it made a big difference in how all of the parties to the litigation understood what was going on um, um, in that room while they were trying to resuscitate um, resuscitate the patient. So, um, you know, those, those reviews can be very, very telling. And, you know, sometimes they're helpful to the physician. Sometimes, you know, or whoever the healthcare provider is, sometimes they're helpful to the patient, um, but they always provide more information. So that's why lawyers very much want to um, see them. Um, and there's a lot of time and in, in, in effort in litigation devoted to um, um, trying to discover those internal reviews and reports during the course of a case. Wow, that's something I, I knew nothing about, but it's very interesting. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of, lot of litigation about that. Now it's time for our ethical dilemma. Every month, I take a few minutes out of each episode to pose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on the Kentucky Bar opinions and real MPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 12 minutes or 0.2 hours. If you listen to all 12 monthly episodes of our podcast in the CLE year, you can walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credits. Today's hypothetical has to do with secretly recording witnesses and parties. Jay, are you ready? I'm ready. I've tried to be an ethical lawyer, so we'll find out today if that's true. All right. Question number one. May an attorney secretly record conversations with client, attorneys, judges, and the public, including public officials, where said persons are not witnesses in a criminal proceeding in which the attorney is employed as defense counsel? Well, that's that's a great and hard question. So, so the short answer is in Kentucky, no, you may not. A lawyer may not secretly um, record a record um, any interview um, with anybody in connection with the case, um, and that goes for not only the lawyer but intermediaries that they may that they uh, may do that through. But Kentucky is different um, 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 than a lot of states in that regard, and that rule is going to vary depending on where you are. But in Kentucky, the, the short answer is no, you can never do that. And what do you think is the justification for that? Why does the bar not approve of, you know, secretly recording? <clears throat> well, so so the, the rule comes from an, an, an ethics opinion that came out in the early 80s and uh, from the Kentucky uh, Bar Association Ethics Committee. Um, and, and, and those opinions have the force of law um, um, for lawyers and we can be disciplined um, for failing to abide by them. And in 1984, um, when that opinion came out, um, it was based on the the current guidance and the current ethics opinions of the American Bar Association that was generally followed nationally at the time. And in, in, in turn, um, the American Bar Association's opinion that was in force um, back then um, was based on uh, the old, what was called the Code of Professional Responsibility, uh, which in the 80s and before um, was what lawyers, it was a national code that was adopted in, very, in, in, in various iterations by, by most states um, in various forms, but it was um, kind of the basis for that. And, and that code um, had a provision in it that said a lawyer should avoid even the appearance of impropriety. 
And the rationale of the ABA that was then adopted by the Kentucky Bar Association was um, it's a fine line. And if a lawyer, your lawyers are in a position of trust, and even if they're talking to somebody other than their client, uh, the public should have confidence and trust in lawyers. And if they're being surreptitiously recorded, if they're being recorded in secret by that lawyer, um, then that's a breakdown of trust. And that at least could create the appearance of impropriety. And because of that, the ABA said lawyers should not be secretly recording um, uh, um, any conversations with anyone. And th then Kentucky in 1984 adopted that rationale. Um, and that has been the law since 1984 in Kentucky and is still the law. Um, but that rationale, that underlying rationale has changed. For one, the code of professional responsibility no longer exists. Sometime, I think in the early 1990s, um, it was replaced by the ABA's, what's called the model code of professional conduct. And the model code of professional conduct, uh, interestingly, is the basis for the Kentucky rules of professional conduct that lawyers, you know, today in 2021 in Kentucky are required to abide by. And that completely supplanted the old code of professional responsibility that that earlier ABA opinion was based on. And so what changed when they changed from the code of professional responsibility to the model rules? Well, the model rule, uh, um, it eliminated um, the um, provision that lawyers should avoid even the appearance of impropriety of impropriety and that's no longer the uh, the law the, the the new model code um, which in in large part has been adopted in Kentucky is that lawyers are prohibited from um, engaging in any con conduct involving actual deceit or misrepresentation um, you know that's part of the model code but the appearance of impropriety is no longer the part part of that so fast forward a little bit more, and in the, uh, I think it was in 2001, the ABA issued a new opinion about um, electronically uh, recording um, conversations by lawyers, or secretly recording conversations by lawyers. And the ABA looked at the new code and said, um, you know, that our old opinion was antiquated um, and uh, there's no longer a requirement to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And that in a lot of states, it's generally accepted that there can be in general secret recordings of conversations in at least some, some um, area. So the ABA changed um, its rule and said that there is no um, blanket prohibition on secret recording by lawyers. Um, lawyers still have to, um, under the ABA um, rule today, lawyers still, um, have to abide by whatever the law, the the statutory law of secret recordings is in that jurisdiction. You basically, if there's a state law or wherever you are that that um, um, speaks to whether conversations can be secretly recorded, you have to abide by that law. If it, if the law prohibits it in general, a lawyer can't do it. But if the law allows it, that a lawyer can do it um, as long as the lawyer is not um, misrepresenting the fact that they're doing it. So if a lawyer is asked um, um, if they're recording, they have to answer truthfully. They cannot lie to a witness or a client or a, um, let's put clients aside, but, but a witness or a person they're interviewing, they can't, uh, under the ABA rule, they can't lie about it, 
but they don't have to volunteer that information if state law does not require them to. Kentucky is a, uh, as many states are, is a one-party consent state. So as long as one party of the conversation knows it's being recorded, um, everybody, it can be recorded legally. Um, what the ethics rule opinion says in Kentucky is that doesn't apply to lawyers. Lawyers have to, if you're working on a case, you have to disclose the fact that you're recording a conversation. Um, the ABA now says all you have to do is comply with state law and then not misrepresent to the person you're recording, uh, you know, if they ask or if there's some otherwise some reason that it is required ethically um to be candid with that information you have to be candid candid about it um so the national rule has changed and a lot of states have followed that national rule of the ones that have an ethics opinion the last time i looked the majority of states that have an opinion on this now allow lawyers to um, make secret recordings as long as they are consistent with state law, state recording laws of the place that the recording is being made. Um, Kentucky has has not changed its rule. Kentucky still prohibits lawyers requiring that. They've not followed the ABA um, and they don't follow Kentucky's state law, even though state law would allow a, a, a an ordinary person um, to secretly record conversations. Lawyers still cannot do that in, in Kentucky. Um, I've talked to some members or a member of the, the ethics committee about this within the last couple of years. I know it's been um, brought up uh, at the KBA ethics committee um, um, meetings. And so far there's been no move to change that rule in Kentucky. And I don't think the last I heard there wasn't a lot of interest in it. So I think that's going to main, remain the law in Kentucky for lawyers um, for a long time. Um, a trap for lawyers here is that you, you um, can't do through an intermediary um, what you cannot do um, yourself. So if you have a paralegal in your office or if you have an investigator you've hired, uh, those people, even though they're not lawyers, they cannot hire uh, or they cannot secretly record conversations because while they're working for a lawyer, they are bound by the by the same ethical rules um, that, that, a, that a lawyer is bound by. Um, so you can't send somebody else, em, employ, volunteer, friend, or anyone else out to uh, make a secret recording that the lawyer um, could not make himself. And, and the rules of professional responsibility say a lawyer is responsible um, for the conduct of non-lawyer uh, um, assistance. This is rule 5.3 of the model code and of Kentucky's professional responsibility code it says, a lawyer shall be responsible for conduct of such person that would be a violation of the rules of professional conduct um, if it's engaged in by a lawyer, if the lawyer orders it, um, or if the lawyer with the knowledge of the specific conduct uh, ratifies it. Um, or if the lawyer knows of the conduct at a time when its consequences can be avoided or mitigated um, and doesn't do anything about it. So, so that rule says that basically that a lawyer cannot um, um, have a non-lawyer go out and do their dirty work for them. And, it, and if a lawyer instructs a non-lawyer to do something the lawyer can't do ethically, um, the lawyer is still um, subject to um, ethical limitations of that. But there's another interesting part of the opinion. <laughs> yes, that's, that's what I was going to talk about. We've got just a couple more minutes to spend on this. And I think we need to talk about this because it, it is important. And it's question number two. May an attorney employed to defend a person accused in a criminal proceeding secretly record conversations with witnesses in that proceeding? 
And the answer to that is yes, at least in Kentucky, that's an exception to the rule. Um, and and in fact, um, and you, you know, you're a criminal defense lawyer. You probably can talk about the rationale for this better than I can. But as I understand it, the reason that the um, that the Kentucky Ethics Committee made an exception for that that was not in the old now defunct ABA rule um, or ABA ethics opinion is that there. Are, areas in the law where because of specific statute prosecutors or, or criminal investigators the police and, and others are allowed to are specifically allowed to make secret recordings in preparing their case wiretaps and 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 that sort of thing and the rationale as i understand it was if a if a uh, prosecutor or if an investigator, a state investigator is allowed to secretly record, then it would be um, a disadvantage and perhaps even a violation of the constitutional rights of the accused if their lawyer cannot, does not have, it's not afforded the same privilege. So that's a narrow exception that, that lawyers and their investigators, defense lawyers and their investigators can secretly record witnesses, um, interviews of witnesses of the criminal conduct uh, or in the criminal trial in the course of their conduct. They, however, cannot secretly record their client. Um, uh, and, and there's some other rationale for that. And even in the the civil context, in, in the states that say you can that that state that say that you can now secretly record consistent with state law, some of those states still preclude lawyers from recording their own clients because of that position with trust uh, of trust that they're in. And even in the states that allow secret recording of the client, um, it's questionable or, or there's language that it's that it's bad practice and it's strongly discouraged that lawyers secretly record their own clients. So in almost any situation, wherever you are, wherever you practice, it's a bad idea to secretly record your own client. Um, but, but there are areas where, um, there are areas where, um, um, that would be allowed, even if it's um, not a, not a good practice for lawyers. And there's one other point, if we've got time to talk about it for just a second. Sure. And it's a follow-up opinion that came out in Kentucky just a few months after that opinion we talked about. And that is a question of, of can a lawyer, um, um, inform their client, if their client comes to them and asks them, um, can I secretly record the defendant or a witness or, or whomever? Um, and, and this is really against the, right up against the line. A lawyer has to be very carefully, but the, but very careful about this, but the KBA ethics opinion says that you can, uh, you, um, while you cannot instruct your client to go out and make a secret recording and you cannot suggest it to them. If the client on their own comes and asks, a lawyer can explain what the law is. So the client is not bound by the ethics opinion, merely the lawyer cannot use the client to get around the ethics opinion. So if your client comes to you and says, hey, I'm in this fence line dispute with my neighbor and he talks to me about every night, I wanna record him, can I do that? You can explain what the law of the state is. And in Kentucky, the law is as long as one party knows about the recording, um, you don't have to disclose the, the, the uh, recording to every party, uh, the fact that it's being recorded to every party to the conversation. So a lawyer can tell their client what the law is 
if the client initiates and asks. And a client can make a legal recording and then it could be used. Um, but a lawyer has to be very careful that they cannot initiate that. And they certainly cannot suggest to a client or instruct a client to make a secret recording, but they're not prohibited from explaining what the law is if the client, um, if the client initiates it um, on its own. And that is KBA ethics opinion. E-289, um, which came out um, just a few months after E-279. E-279 is the opinion that prohibits lawyers from making secret recordings. Awesome. Very well done, Jay. Um, we're about out of time. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners today? You know, I think the, the thing to remember is that the civil justice system is um, – enshrined in our law as old as our republic itself. Um, the founders of our country thought it was so important that they made it part of the Bill of Rights. The Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees um, a civil, uh, the right to a civil jury trial in any case involving a dispute of more than $20 between two citizens of the United States or, or a citizen and a, and a corporation here. That's a, a, an original principle, founding principle of our republic. Um, and it's incredibly important. If you look at the Kentucky Constitution, it says that the right to trial by jury shall be inviolate and the courthouse doors shall be open to all people. So we have an even stronger um, uh, uh, um, pr um, protection of the civil justice system and the civil jury in the Kentucky Constitution than the well-known Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. These are critical, <coughs> excuse me, these are critical um, protections um, for our citizenry um, in, uh, that are enshrined in our, in our constitution. And it's something that's not a partisan thing. Uh, it's something that I think is important to everybody, uh, whether they be a business or they be an individual, that the courthouse doors are open and that there's access to the courthouse. I tell all of my juries um, at some point during arguments that there are only two times that ordinary individual citizens get to tell the government directly what to do and the government has to follow that. One of those is in the voting booth um, during an election and the other is in the jury box um, when six or 12 people are given the sacred duty of, of sitting for a cause of action and, and um, making a determination that then is binding on uh, everybody involved and that our government, our state government, our federal government must respect. And it's a solemn duty, it's an important duty, um, and it's really critical to the free democracy that we have. Um, and that's important to remember as we hear, there's, it's always a political issue. Should we have as many jury trials? Are there runaway verdicts? Um, you know, the answer to that is, is the crisis we hear about about um, um, too much cost in the civil justice system are always tightly correlated with when stocks are performing bad and when insurance companies are having trouble. That's when suddenly there are too many verdicts. But the, the truth is the data over and over says, no, the civil justice system works very well, but even more importantly, it's, it's a fundamental constitutional precept um, of our state and of our republic. Um, and I'd encourage all of your listeners to keep that in mind and, and do all they can to support the um, trial by jury remaining inviolate, just like our Kentucky Constitution says. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. I'd like to thank Jay Prather of Garmer and Prather for being with us today. If you know someone that you think would make a good guest for the show, don't hesitate to reach out to bclark at surreylaw.com. That's bclark at S-U-H-R-E-L-A-W.com. 
As always, I'm Brad Clark, the host of The Kentucky Lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. If you have any questions about getting CLE credit for listening to today's program, go to kylawshow.com. You'll find the answers there. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.